Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, where we chat to people making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. And here is your host for today, Josh Griffin. Thanks so much, Annette. Thanks for that lovely introduction, as always. And uh, I want to throw to you, but I can't because you're not here. So I'm just letting everyone know the uh, behind the scenes, the magic has been disrupted. Annette's not here today. But I am joined by the wonderful Renee Knapp, who I'll introduce very shortly. But uh, first, a quick favor I do have to ask everyone. Have you rated and reviewed the podcast yet? I'm guessing no, because most people don't, myself included. I had so many uh, podcasts that are on my favorite list that I haven't rated and reviewed. And so lately I've been writing that wrong because I'm asking you guys to do it. So why shouldn't I? So jump on only takes a few minutes. If you're not sure how to do it, then uh, Annette's put a really handy little guide up at awardsaustralia.com slash podcast. So check that out, rate and review the podcast because it helps us get it out to more people. And at the end of the day, this podcast is about sharing the stories of inspirational people. And speaking of, for this week's dose of inspiration, we are joined by Renee, as I mentioned, who is an outstanding educator and an advocate for positive mental health. Renee has been a classroom teacher for over 20 years. And on top of that, she's a musician. She teaches music and she's very involved with the community. In fact, she set up the Community Mental Health Action Team, which has been integral in supporting the work done at the school level with her school there in Boyatbrook. And it's been a real journey that's led to Renee starting her consultancy as well, which we'll cover off shortly. Renee also developed a sustainable and widely recognised music program at the high school called Music Rock Band Program. And Renee was a finalist in the Curtin University School of Education Teaching Excellence Award in 2019. Welcome, Renee. How are you this morning? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. So you're in Boyatbrook, and for those who don't know, can you explain where that is and a little bit about that that town and that region? Sure. So Boyatbrook is in rural Western Australia. We're about um, three hours south of Perth, but inland um, in a farming community, so very much a sheep and cropping farming community. Boyatbrook's a beautiful little town. It's kind of off the beaten track, but it's got a great um, community feel and a very passionate music town. And and I was actually born here many, 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 many years ago, um, but only lived here till I was two, but I've ended up back on a farm when I married a farmer. So feeling very spoiled, although it is a little bit crazy when people tell me they saw me when I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, yeah, because you weren't here for long. So then you were off. No, no. (laughs) And then you were back. So can I ask, how did you make your way back? Was it something that you'd wanted to do to return to your roots or? Um, yeah, uh, no, it was very much love. Um, yeah. <laughs> I met my husband in my, um, oh, my late teens and we've been together a long time. So I got my first teaching posts up in South Headland, which is right um, in the north of Western Australia, sort of six hours south of Broome. And I took him up there and we stayed up there for about five years, which was amazing, um, challenging, but amazing teaching, uh, really gave me my grounding in teaching. And then um, we sort of progressed our way down to Perth and then always knew we'd end up on the farm. And once we'd sort of been in Perth for a little while, we moved our way down to Boy Up. And then, um, yeah, I was lucky enough, had three gorgeous boys and um, have since been living the life and very much embedded in motorbikes and dirt and everything you could imagine in between with boys and living on a farm. Yeah, so uh, so three boys, that would be uh, getting used to. Did you have brothers 
growing up or was it kind of something new? I had one boys? younger brother, but oh, to be honest, I think um, having three boys has been wonderful. I think as a mother, you always, you know, like the idea of having uh, both, you know, both boys and girls, but I just think it's the most wonderful thing for my boys that they have each other and I've become a real mum of boys I love I've you know it's made made me live an adventurous uh life I think we took our boys traveling and you really gear it up around the things they like which is a lot of adrenaline so I've learned to love all those sorts of things as well for sure and um would did were they born and kind of grown up in Boyatbrook or were they you know have grown up and moved around no, so we, um, when I first moved down to Boy Up, I was originally at Cogen Up and, um, yeah, uh, probably there a year and then had my um, first boy and then they've all grown up at Boy Up and they've been such a part of the mental health work that I've done and they've been part of this incredible musical town because as much as I say I was their music teacher, it was just one part of it. There was We've got an amazing rock band music program at our school and, yeah, it's, my, my eldest is now 16 and my youngest is 12 and it's it's really great to see the benefits they've had from living in a small community and all that it can bring, which I think is pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, so speaking of music, um, well, that's one thing I had heard actually, I knew that about Boyat Brook, that it was music town because there's a big music festival, is that right? That, the, that yeah, there's a country you? music festival. Ironically, yeah. I'm not remotely country <laughs> music oriented, <laughs> but um, it's a really good association and I think as well as the country music part, we've had this incredible rock band music program that's existed at Boy Up. I actually met my husband when he was performing in a musical. He would be devastated that I'm telling people that. But um, (laughs) um, he's not particularly a show person when it comes to music. But there's always been this tradition in Boy Up around music and my boys have been very, very fortunate that we've had, we had an incredible musician, John Roberts, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but he taught all of my boys their music and got me up and performing in a band for the first time in my musical career and just really brought to life the music that exists in Boy Up. And I think that's been amazing. And I think there's a, you know, as someone who has had to look for um, an educational program for my eldest, there's not a lot of it around. There's a lot of classical music, so it's really exciting to be part of something that's quite grassroots in singer, songwriting and and playing live and, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Yep, and now am I correct in saying you played a part in developing that rock band program? Yeah, absolutely. And I've come from probably myself a fairly classical music background, but um, I had been doing the music program at the primary school for quite a long time. But through collaboration with this, the what was going on at the high school level, um, I then, we sort of work together. I do a lot of vocal stuff. I do a lot of um, vocal ensemble and choir, and I've taken groups to Steadfords. I've had us engaged with the Songmakers program. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but there's a APRA AMCOS program that's encouraging development of songwriters in Australia and they they kind of get 50 schools across Australia each year and we were lucky enough I submitted a submission and we were lucky enough to get Cav Templey the lead singer Rescue My Joe and oh. um, Anna Laverne and all sorts of stuff to Boy Out Brook so that was really really amazing so um, but I kind of see it as I mean yes I, you know I've had a lot I've done a lot to do with it but I really think the strength of it's been the collaboration that we've done in working together we we as a band have then played together a lot of the other teachers have we've played together in a band we will get the kids up to perform at local gigs so they get that experience of playing in front of other people which is 
what music's all about, that yep. excitement of being in front of a live audience. It's terrifying but also awesome <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> well, it's funny, isn't it? Music can bring out something in people because, you know, you could be the shyest um, most nervous person and singing, playing an instrument, whatever it is, performing in that way can really yeah, bring out another side in people and, and show confidence. Well, I think that's a really relevant point you say because my eldest is um, a diehard musician. He's a songwriter and, and uh, performer and all this sort of thing. And he himself, you know, is very shy and withdrawn, but put a guitar in his hand totally different yep. <laughs> it just comes to life so yeah so it's, it's amazing the benefits and the just the, the incredible benefits that music can offer as as uh you know we're very spoiled at our school we've got an incredible art program and an incredible really an incredible whole picture I suppose it is and I think that's you know that ties in so well with mental health because for so many of us people might not be academic or sporty but those other avenues might play into their mental health and keeping them healthy and all those sorts of things yeah, I don't know if this is a, um, a generalisation, so I guess I've got you to ask, which is perfect. But it seems to me in regional areas, sport is huge for p- kids growing up and oh. community. And so is, it must be good <laughs> having something like music as an, an alternative outlet uh, for people. Yeah, look, I, I think absolutely. It's interesting because I'm really passionate about the idea of um, a sense of belonging and connection being a big part of mental health um, and at, which is what's led me very much, you know, it's been a big part of our community approach to mental health. And I really think sport, is, sport, as you said, sport is huge in country areas. I've, Like I said, I've been in the north of WA and sport is massive, but I think there's so many other areas too. And for everybody, a sense of belonging and connection it's not one model fits all. It looks different for everybody. And I think it's really important to have that breadth of opportunities and to tap into the local experts that you've got. You know, one of the Mm. things we're doing is looking at intergenerational things and the wisdom from our older generation and the wisdom from people who might be talented in an area you never knew about. And I think we've got to get in our local areas, whether that's regional or urban sort of thing, at tapping into that because we don't always have to outsource an expensive, faraway opportunity. We can actually strengthen what's in our local environment. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, I want to circle back to this because I, lo- I love what you're talking about and I know that your consultancy, you're, you're working with community um, on mental health kind of approaches, approaches to mental health. But before we get to that, I think I just need to ask you about you know, I know that mental health is a big passion for you, a big focus. Where did that come from? Is that something that was really tied into your teaching? Uh, and is it a recent thing? Yeah, let us know about some of the background there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I, as I said, I've been teaching for over 20 years and I probably in my later, I became a level three classroom teacher um, and had done a lot of work in curriculum. And then as I had children, I became very passionate about both behaviour and mental health and wellbeing in schools. And I think um, that was largely driven. I'd had my own mental health issues and I'd then supported a family member with mental health issues. And it became really apparent. We were in my role as a deputy, we were looking at prioritising in a school. And I just started to say, maybe it's part of becoming a mum. I think you get that wider breadth of everything that goes on for a child. But I started to see that there's just so much that um, is going on. It probably started for me with behaviour and starting to look at what was behind the behaviour because I've had a lot to do with a program called PBS, which is Positive Behaviour Support. And I've, I've done a lot of presenting around that. And I'm very passionate about the fact that it's a 
a process of change as opposed to a program. I think there's so many programs out there that are fantastic um, and we can utilise those. But what's important is how do we make those, whether it's program or whatever it might be, how do we how do we change the culture in our schools? How do we start looking beyond behaviour and seeing what's really going on for a child? And I think I always remember hearing someone say that when we teach reading and a child makes a mistake, we we teach. But when a child makes a behave makes a mistake with behaviour, we typically punish. And I think that that's a really critical thing to think about. And what got me very passionate about behaviour, because I started looking at, well, when can we find the teachable moments to make a difference? And yep. what that led me to is that mental health is such a critical part of that. And I've done quite a lot of presenting about how we look at behaviour and mental health together because they really rarely exist alone. It's not to say that behaviour is always mentally health driven, but I think there's a large part of that. And sorry, just to circle back around again, I, I guess my part in that mental health came from, as I said, because I'd had my own experiences, it just became, it seemed like, why aren't we in schools considering we teach our kids to eat well, to get enough sleep and to exercise. We really should be tapping on looking after your mental health. You know, and I think um, we talk so often about early intervention with our students and things like that. And this is something that should become part of what we do, um, you yeah. know, and who we are. And so uh, probably about five or six years ago, I actually had spent a lot of time utilising stuff in schools around Kids Matters and Minds Matters, which were programs that were being utilised that I felt really passionate about. And I desperately wanted to form another committee, but being in a small rural town, there's only so many people to go around. Everyone's so stretched and always <laughs> putting up their hand and yep. they're amazing and doing fantastic things. So I sort of, I was at the time, I, I met with a few like-minded people in town, our local doctor and a community resource manager and a, a business woman. And I started to think, why do we have to limit it to just within the school? And I started thinking if we could look beyond the school walls, we often do like educators are just amazing, the work they do with students and the what they look at and the, the roles they take as, you know, effectively counsellors these days sometimes, even though it's not something that typically we are required to do. And I started to see, see an opportunity to think, why can't we work on this as a community? So what ensued was I, I sort of... Um, approached my matters and said, well, what if I took this idea and did it as a community and, and formed a community mental health action team? So what became was our, what we affectionately called our ComHat. And it, it just was, there's, I think the, the reason behind it for me is that there are so many people that are passionate. There's so many people that are working extremely hard in different sectors, our health sectors, our counsellors, our um, hospitals, our police, our educators, yet I certainly had never crossed those boundaries and worked with those other sectors as an educator. Mm. I'd never um, worked in collaboration. And what I started to see is everybody's got these incredible strengths. Why can't we work together to make real localised change happen in our environment to start looking at what the gaps are and how can we fill them to think about, well, how can we utilise each other's strengths, which turn minimises our own stress because we're trying to do everything and instead we could just be doing what we're good at and, and lean on each other to do that. And I think so that effectively is what became 
our community mental health action team. And I guess my consultancy has grown from that because I now look at, well, how can I, I hear so many people knowing what it is that they want to achieve. They want to achieve this move away from siloed approaches to mental health and work together. But it's a little bit like, but how do we do it? And where do we start? And my passions come from both in behaviour and mental health, looking at the process in order to do that. How can we take it and how can we make sure it's sustainable and our poor volunteers don't burn out and end up you know we don't want to do this work I, and where my sorry I get carried away and talk no forever. it's good I can, I can hear your passion <laughs> but where I get where I get excited is that I think I don't want to be being in a small town I don't want to create an initiative or do something implement change and then find three or five years down the track again and just rejig the wheels if we're going to culture of change whether it be in behavior or whether it be in our community in terms of mental health let's do this effectively support the people who are putting their hands up and really think about how change can happen and so that that change can apply not only in in boy up but so that it can imply in a city area so that it can imply in another rural town it's no good well for me in my opinion having a model that only fits our local scenario. We need something that can then be adapted and used in another area. And what we're finding, because in our journey, we've developed a community, uh, sorry, a community wellbeing plan. And we're actually finding a lot of communities now asking to have access to that and utilise it. And because people can see what they want to do, they just don't know where to start and how to get through those processes and how to manage those things like one of my one thing that I find really important is you don't want to have a meeting and come away and feel that we haven't achieved anything because people's time is so valuable in our busy society now that you want to take that passion and that excitement and make sure that something everybody comes away with a sense of achievement or some sense of progress. Yeah, so that's you know, why meetings. That's why meetings <laughs> get a bad name, isn't it? Because people would tend to think, oh, we're just going to all sit around for an hour talk and then. Uh, We'll do it again in a week and nothing will have happened. But meetings should be the oh, most powerful time. Absolutely. Meetings should be the. Uh, oh, and I think meetings are, I get excited by that <laughs> really, but I think meetings are, and, I, and I'm someone who is the chair of this team and my role is actually to be quiet. And that's a, that's a big achievement for me because as you can get an impression, I'm, I quite like to talk. But I think. You know, meetings are about getting everybody's opinion and and making sure that, um, like we've we have we've quite a long way down our journey as a community action team. And when we first started, we had an action team of sort of five or six people, and that's now become a bit of our admin committee that look at grant getting grants and we look at funding. And we've now got a community wellbeing plan, and that is made up of all the different groups, like we've got our Southwest Alcohol and Other Drug, we've got our sporting groups, we've got our police, we've got our community health services. And my role at those meetings is to make sure how can those people be involved so they then have ownership of their plan and they're not feeling like I'm turning up to a meeting to get told what to do, you know, because you can do that in an email. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true because if you're coming along and you felt like uh, not you but if if one of those groups of people feeling that their concerns are being heard, their questions are being considered and, and really actioned, then you leave that meeting feeling really positive. Oh, that's great. I had this issue. It's been heard. It's been listened to. That It's been valued. And now I can you know, go out there knowing that people are supporting me. I think valued is that key word, Josh. I think that 
people feeling valued is just so critical. And if you want to implement change, um, if people don't feel valued, they're never going to continue that work. And I think certainly when looking at a community or cross-sector approach to mental health, um, it is really important to feel to make sure that people feel valued because they may have things that you haven't considered. They And that's probably the majority of the time is that, um, you know, I know one of the things I feel passionate about is um, getting data and I, it, it makes me... It, it, makes me laugh thinking that I'm saying that because I've never liked data. But I think that, um, you know, really finding out what's going on, not just assuming that we know what's going on is really important. We need to actually be creative in the way we get data, you know, not just stick to a survey, but really go out there and talk to people and find different ways to engage people in a changing world, uh, people who don't have time. And then really make sure that what you're doing is something that people feel empowered by because, in my example, what was amazing is when we first started, when I first started this community mental health action team, we knew that one of the things we needed was a youth officer because we were really worried about our youth. We have a lot of kids that leave in year 10 and we wanted to make sure there was engagement for them and something to do and and ways to help them develop their mental health and know that they had support if they couldn't, you know, one of our issues distance to mental health support. Um, our closest town is another um, 30 kilometres and I myself live 40 kilometres out of town the other way and a lot of people can't get to these things. So we had to think, okay, well, this is our target group at the moment and what can we do to help them and make sure this sort of happens? That's just really critical to start thinking about what is it that you can do with this local group and where can you go and how can you make that sort of happen? Because by having a good set of frameworks, you can then look at we're going to we're helping the youth at the moment, but who can we help later on? Like one of our one of our key things came out when we were doing our plan was that we need to start looking at intergenerational opportunities. We've got all this wisdom of our older age people, and our youth have got passion and probably need to develop an understanding of respect and and you know uh, appreciate the wisdom that comes. Well, how can we tie those two together? Because it wasn't just naturally there, and certainly that sense of belonging and connection once again came up because. Back in the olden days, people came together and gathered. Well, that's not no longer there anymore. So we had to start thinking, well, how can we make that happen? And, and I'd so, say um, that there's a real um, disconnect or a real uh, lack of intergenerational um, connection happening outside of maybe family, grandparents um, and family friends, because I think it goes both ways in terms of young people perhaps, and this is obviously generalising, Perhaps, you know, maybe yeah. not respecting and appreciating wisdom from the older generations and vice versa. Older people not absolutely maybe taking into effect what young people can offer that their skills and knowledge at, at, as, at a young age, sometimes they think, oh, what, what can they do? What can they contribute? And so you do see when those well, look, I think, I think groups come together, it's, uh, it's wonderful. I think that's so critical and it's interesting. One of the grants we've recently accessed has been a Skillinet grant through um, the ABC Haywire grants and it's been amazing because we're now getting our youth actually starting today to have some of our um, business people talk about tax and superannuation and things that kids kind of miss out at a Mm. school level. Um, But we've also looked at... That exact reason, I was I was lucky enough to go to an amazing conference in Perth and um, heard about a project called the 5,000 Days Project. And one of the things we're looking at is getting our youth 
to use this um, model. And it's basically that by telling your story, you work through your own mental health. And we're thinking we've got these people in that we have a what's called our home for the aged and our people live there. And in the past we've had choir go to sing to them and do other things. And we thought, why not get our youth to interview significant people that are in the lodge and get them to tell their stories, which might otherwise have been lost, never to have been discovered. While we could get that person just to do an interview, we thought much better to have a youth, someone in our youth actually do the interviewing because suddenly they're getting to see and appreciate the, the wisdom that those people can offer. And I think it, but I think that the trick is to find a way to set those processes up. Like mm, yep. I think sometimes we assume that they'll happen incidentally, but if we can actually set up, this is a key, t- like one of, in our community wellbeing plan, we set up a few key outcomes. We said, right, we want to work on that whole idea of coming together and developing a sense of belonging and connection. We wanted to look at um, support pathways and where the gaps existed and how to fill it. And we wanted to look at education and awareness around alcohol and other drugs. Now, the beauty is we can then change those priorities as we need to. But what's really critical is that we can take that priority and go, okay, how are we going to do that? Who can be involved? And rather than it just be the six or 10 people of us on the committee, working our, you know, doing a little duck feet and peddling and all that sort of stuff. Let's engage other people and then get them involved. And and that just reminds me of something I was going to say earlier and I got off on a tangent. But, you know, I think this idea of getting, making people feel valued. When we first started this committee, as I was mentioning that youth officer thing, we then wanted to find a youth officer. And at the time, we had a little bit of resistance um, from our shire, who are now our biggest supporters. They're just incredible, our, our shire, um, and a great key part of making this action happen. Um, but at the time, we wanted to have this um, youth idea grow, and we ended up getting $25,000 worth of donations from our local community, which was just incredible to create a position so that we could employ someone two days a week. That's and great, uh, that all support. came from uh, just just amazing. That came from our local co-op and our uh, Rylington Park. But it was from that passion, from listening to the opinion of these people and taking that supportive idea of passion that we were able to grow the idea and turn it into something that we're now looking at getting bigger grants and and getting attention and you know as I said I'm talking at conferences and getting that notice but it came from that starting point of valuing what people had to say and things that we might not have noticed so I think that's really critical. If um, someone out there is uh, you know is listening to this and thinking like wow my community needs something like this what would be, and I'm putting you on the spot here, what would be your advice for, you know, maybe yeah. step one and two? How, how can someone get started? And Because you, you you mentioned that at the start yourself. That's really sometimes overwhelming just to even get started. It's actually you mentioned that because I literally, while I was waiting for our interview this morning, was typing up a bit of an implementation letter about how to go from start to finish because <laughs> uh, it is a question I get asked a lot. Um, honestly, I really, really think that the starting point is your action team because you can do everything under the sun. We tend to want to start by going, let's start doing something. But if you don't have a really well set up team that supports each other and has the right things in mind, you're never going to be able to sustain what you're doing. So my opinion is spending time, whether it's six months, whether it's a year, might be shorter, but whatever you need to do is thinking about who can we have on this team? 
And and it doesn't have to be to start with. We started off with a small group of four to us and it's grown to sort of six to ten. And then we have a sort of a subcommittee that sits under us now that we've written a wellbeing plan. But it's about thinking who's going to be there. I honestly, and I, I don't mean to say this, I feel bad saying this when I am a chair, but find someone who can be a good chair, someone who can keep the motivation going and keep that, not do the work, not do all the work, but be that facilitator that checks off on that checklist or we need to get moving on this or we need to start talking about this and this needs to be on our agenda. I think having really clear, uh, you know, spending the time at the start going, how are we going to reach decisions? Let's be creative and make it a bit enjoyable and all this sort of thing. How are we going to uh, meet? When are we going to meet that's at a time that's suitable to everyone? Do some people need to zoom in? You know, thinking about like I said before, valuing people's time. So I think that action team part's really critical. I think the second thing to do is, well, probably not the second, probably at the same time, is definitely create some form of overview. I think I've found over and over again, whether it's PBS uh, behaviour, whether it's mental health in schools, because I've kind of created a culture of wellbeing document in schools and I've created student engagement plans and things like that, but have have a document that says from start to finish, this is the process we're going to follow, not this is the program we're going to follow. The program might be one little element of it, but first we're going to set up our team, then we're going to collect our data, blah, 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 which lets the people, gives everybody a sense of direction um, and also a sense of achievement when you can go, yeah, we've done that. Fantastic. We're moving along because I think at first when you're setting up processes like communication and getting the word out, social media or whatever it might be, you want to have a sense of, yeah, yeah, we're doing this because, as I mentioned before, you need that sense of self-achievement so you can feel proud of what you're doing. Um, So I think that's really critical and I've found that I've developed those for every single one of the work every single thing I ever do, I always create this, what I call an implementation checklist. Um, and the other thing, as I mentioned before, collecting some data. So start by thinking what's going on, what's actually going on in our local community um, and whether that's a survey monkey thing or whether it's you take, like it's certainly in Australia we're pretty lucky. We, um, as educators, use a program called BU. It's the um, Beyond Blue National sort of framework. There's also yep. one called the Wellbeing Network and you can, take things from that and go, all right, well, um, you can get some information about that. And what that allows is the team to then have a snapshot and create some initial goals. So you can go, yep, some goals. Now, it might change once you start getting more in-depth data, but at least you've got a starting point. And then you can sort of say, all right, well, these are some things. Let's get some small wins because that's probably the final picture, I think, at the start is to go, let's at least have some small wins. And whether that might be like running a mental health week, event or whether it might be, um, I don't know, running a little session or getting someone in or something that makes you go, yeah, we're doing something and we're going to feel proud of it. Because I think when you first start, you're not going to have everybody knocking on the door. You're not going to have everybody doing everything, but you as a small team want to create that momentum that can then grow to be whatever it is that you are trying to achieve. Yep. I I love that, uh, Renee. Can I ask you a few questions and uh, absolutely you know, just to flesh out a couple of details here? Because I can imagine someone hearing this and going, "Step one, what's six months? Twelve months? Like it's too long." Yeah, absolutely. But and this is more of a comment, I guess. But if it's an idea that's worth doing to to bring benefit to the community, then you really do need to make sure it is sustainable. As you said at the start. 
often these things are led by people volunteering their time and effort. And if someone all of a sudden, oh, I'm sick or it's too much, I can't, my family life and work life is a uh, means I can't commit to it and that person can't do it anymore, then the, you know, the uh, initiative crumbles. And so mm. that, that's where the plan, the team, the overview, those kind of things are all playing a part in helping it to be sustainable. So I guess my question is, you know, two questions really, Renee, who was your person that you relied on at the start when you were forming the com hat, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what Nick we name. affectionately call it. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. secondly, you know, can the overview you were talking about when you're laying out that overview, is it natural for, or common for it to change or to, to progress and, and be more of a living document or is that something that you, you try and uh, keep set in stone and, and work towards? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So when I first started, um, I get a bit excited. I put my hand up for a lot of things. I really like to have everything well thought out when I start something. So I'd done a lot of that research and groundwork probably myself. I'd um, spoken to um, a great guy, Andrew Barrett, who at the time was with Principles Institute Australia, but I think he's just recently gone and joined YSAFE. It was probably more me talking to him um, and relaying how we were going about doing this. I think for me probably knowing where to go didn't come from mental health. I think I my role in the chair was really about and this is my role, I suppose, even in my consultancy, is helping develop those checklists, helping de- develop that process. And I'd done, I'd been the chair of a positive behaviour support program at school and I'd done a lot of work. And what was amazing about that was it wasn't a behaviour program, it wasn't, you know, a, a program that everybody follows. It was a process for change. And I'd spent a lot of time working on that process for change and had been asked to present at a lot of um, network meetings and things about the way I was doing it because I would t- kind of take that process of change and change it. But um, I saw the advantages of that. So I took that idea and took what wasn't there in what, what like I took the resources for mental health training. I used uh, at the time Mind Matters. I used BU. I used the Student mental student uh, Wellbeing Network and created my own overview for that because, as you said, I think, it does change, but I like to have a really well thought out document. I like to try and think about all the different things. Now, I might end up coming and inserting other stuff in later, but I think by fleshing out that idea and not the how, it's not really, I don't think that document is the how, it's the what. It's the, like, it, for example, it might be consult with the community about what's happening. Um, and and then the how might be you know, evolve, but yep. by having that bit there, that's what triggers you. So what I've actually found is I rarely end up changing that checklist, but because I've, you know, sort of extracted it so well. But what I do change, what changes all the time is that for each one of those pointers, I might have an action plan that evolves around that. Yep, and that's-, that's what changes because that's the strategy. It's a little bit like, the you know, you've got your outcomes and what you want to do, but the strategies of how it happens that is decided by the team and that's decided by the localised environment. So that's why I find it works quite well to have this checklist and why I'm currently um, producing that so that people can access it through my website because if you've got that, then any lo- any environment, any local area can do it. It's not 
you know, you can make a plan that looks very different to the Boy Up Brook plan, but the, the checklist of what you're doing is the same. So I think that's really critical in terms of doing it. Um, certainly in terms of my support people, honestly, I could say this one, if you can get your local doctor involved when you first form the team, it's really valuable. And we only had one at the time, and luckily he was really passionate about mental health. He didn't, he didn't have any to choose from. in an urban setting, you might have many no, we didn't, but luckily we had the good one. <laughs> um, and he's just disappeared to Queensland, so we don't have any anymore. But we, I think if you can get one of your local doctors on board, that has changed the game for us because we're talking to someone in health and they can, you know, be involved with education and our police and that's been really critical. So having the right people on the team is important, but at the same time, sometimes it's about getting people who are passionate. Um, I've got one person. We start. We originally started with myself, the local doctor, the community resource manager, and a local businesswoman and parent. And all four of those people were people that were motivated and um, action people. Now, only one of those other people is still on there with me, but she is just incredible. Um, I, she's an amazing lady, Marianne Ingalls, I'm just going to call her out, um, who's our treasurer. And she's just, you know, we've got this through all the different changes we've had, um, having someone that you've got to rely on is really helpful because I think you don't want to be going it alone in these things because you want that sense of belonging and connection too. And I think like you mentioned, people have things that go on and drop out. So you've got to have a little, I think sustainability in your team is really quite critical. So you really have to think that through carefully so that you can uh, put into place things. And we've found now that our team's grown. We've got one of the best things that we put on, and I've just written it onto my checklist is, when you get through a little bit, get a get a get a dedicated grant writer, not yep. someone who's the chair or the treasurer or the youth officer who's already got a massively full role. We originally paid someone a minimal amount, like we weren't we weren't paying them minimal, but we only had them for a few hours a week. They have brought in way 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 more money to our organisation than we have ever outlaid like we pay them for all the hours they do but they our grant writer just gets so much because that's what she's focused on and I see it with shires and with other people is if you can really allow for that it's it's really important so I think that's a really critical bit I've gone way uh, off all all over the place there Josh but (laughs) no it's good well grant writing is also very specialized so if uh if someone Mm. knows how to address a you know a grant uh, application correctly then they're going to be more likely to succeed even if i'm not saying anyone's better than another one but you know what i mean like you could have two programs that um are vastly different in terms of the impact and how the quality but if one grant is addressing all of the criteria and nailing the brief and hitting the guidelines and objectives then it's probably going to be the successful one that's just how grant applications work so I think that's a brilliant piece of Absolutely. advice. Absolutely, and and the grant. I think actually the person. I, I'm a big believer that relationships are critical when it comes to anything. You know, the relationship for me as a chair with the team and with the community. And well, a, a grant writer, out, certainly our grant writer, develops relationships when she's finding out the information and and working through things. And I think that's really important. And once again, she feels valued in her role. And you know, I think. You know, I, I keep harping on about that thing, but I think that it's it's really important. And it's uh, just to go back to what you said before about the idea of, and I think people absolutely would be that six to twelve to have an action team. But what's important is that sustainability, because 
you know, whether it's you who's doing an involunteer role or whether that later evolves to a paid role or whatever it might be, by coming to those meetings, you want to feel that you've got a sense of belonging and connection. You want people to feel valued and you want to make sure that that um, continues on. So our typical first year, we spent, we certainly didn't spend the whole year developing protocols and stuff. We spent probably spent a meeting or two. But what we did is go, do we all have the same understanding of mental health? Okay, well, how can we develop a shared understanding? So let's let's figure that out for ourselves. Does the community have the same understanding of mental health? Let's figure out if they do. So suddenly we're getting a little bit of presence in the community and they're starting to go, oh, who's this community mental health action team? Because it's not always uh, gifted to you by the Shire or whatever. It's often someone who's passionate and it's taking those strengths and then turning it into something that's you know going to be workable and feasible, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, hate to touch on the same thing over and over, but that six or 12 month idea that is we're talking about here, a long-term action group that's Absolutely. really going to be in the community for a long time. We're not talking about a project, a one-off initiative or, or project, obviously those things that you can have the idea and run with it and have great success, but that's more of a, a one-off kind of thing. So I also wanted to ask, um, you know, you talked about speaking uh, at other conferences and, and, you know, sounds like you've helped lots of people um, through your consultancy, which is called Think Effective. I hear you're off uh, interstate soon to, to present. Is that right? I am. I'm exciting at the moment. There's lots going on. So I've, um, I'm off, I've just been invited to go and present at the International Mental Health Conference in Queensland at the end of July. It's very exciting. Um, and next week I'm involved. There's a new association um, called Care Hub, which has been done by the West Australian Mental Health Group. And I'm actually presenting about this community approach to mental health next week. Yeah, I've got a few opportunities coming up. I've recently presented at the Rural and Regional Conference earlier in the year, which was just just an amazing opportunity, these conferences. Um, I've In education, we used to have um, district offices and that doesn't exist anymore. And I think as a someone in a rural area, but even in the city, that chance to talk to like-minded people, you just come away buzzing, you know, you come yeah. away excited and, and excited about what's going on. And so I think... Obviously, my last two conferences, I did um, one. There was a the Mental Health Network conference as well that was at uh, the end of 2020. And both of those recent ones were virtually, which was great. They were set up really well done. But I'm really looking forward to the opportunity in July to go and actually meet people and talk to people because I think this sharing of ideas, this sharing of our strengths, which is the whole idea behind a community or cross-sector approach, but by doing this the more we can share ideas and work together and find effective ways to do things. I think there's so many passionate people who have incredible strengths to share. And if we can put our heads together and, and really think about this sort of stuff, I think we can make a real difference. I um, I got invited, it must have been last year, to uh, be involved in the Young People's Priority Framework Planning with uh, the West Australian uh, government and various different people through the health network. And it was just so exciting to start to talk about some of these things because I think we need to tap into whether it's volunteers or whether it's leaders in various different places and find out what's working effectively and then take that and make real change happen because I guess that's what I'm passionate about is I don't want the the work of great people to be wasted. I think yeah. let's take that passion, take that great that great stuff and make a process that's sustainable and that can make real change happen, whether you're in an urban or a rural setting, so that 
you know, five, 10 years from now, the statistics start to change, you know, or hopefully earlier than that. But, you know, I, I, I think that's really important. I think the timing is uh, absolutely instrumental now. It's crucial because of the year and the year we're having now anyway. And some areas, some regional towns may not be affected. Um, you know, you over there in WA and regional WA, very different experience to what's happening, uh, you know, where I am in Melbourne. But that said, you're still, you know, I'm, I'm talking Absolutely. about COVID here, but uh, you still were being affected with it. And people are getting used to different ways of doing community, of being part of community. We're talking about kids who had potentially a whole year of not going to school or um, childcare or university and then getting back into it. And so I think this is really important timing to be having a focus on community, on mental health and how we all value each other. And it comes back to that, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I just honestly think um, that idea of community and belonging, it's always been there and it's clear even before COVID, but COVID's really highlighted it, is that 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 sense of coming together is critical, but it has to be able to look different for everybody. I'm an extrovert, so I love getting together. But, you know, like my husband is, he's more introverted being and, you know, being on the farm. He doesn't necessarily have that, but he still needs that connection and belonging. And, you know, I've heard, we've had some amazing groups come and speak at Boy Up. We had a group called Doors Wide Open who do a lot of work with uh, addiction and drugs and things like that. And to hear some of the people who'd had lived experience talk and they'd ended up down the path of addiction because of the connection they felt because they didn't have it in any other ways. Kids that I've talked to who've had gaming addictions and where are they finding their belonging through that game? You know, I think there's so many different ways that people connect and belong, but I think COVID has really highlighted that we we all, it's part of being human is that we need that connection and some people need it in a subtle way or yep. in a way that's not too in their face but we all need it in some way. So I think that, and I think this is the ideal situation. You know, you mentioned COVID and granted we've been very spoiled in Western Australia. Just spoke to my brother in Canada and they're in their latest lockdown and, you know, very, very lucky. I think that that just shows why you need a framework for change because at the moment it's COVID, but at other times in a community it could be drought or yeah. it could be bushfires or it could be a local tragedy. If we only ever put into place program and play, I'm not against programs I think programs are excellent but it might be that you take and put into place in that framework around what the current local target is like at the moment we're having a you know say it was a drought issue okay we need to get these people in and that's part of our process you know or you know it might first of all be thinking about who's needed and what we've got to do but by having that process and by setting up that action team and doing it well the first time in my world, it would be that, well, that's a sustainable method for change that can then sit in that local area or that community no matter what the situation is. You know, you can then apply yep. it to whatever it might be. Now, Renee, obviously your head is full of uh, incredible knowledge and resources, but I know <laughs> that your blog on your website has some really great content as well. Um, where can people find out more and um, read more and connect with you? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm really trying to um, set up my blog so that what I'm is in my head <laughs> is, is out there for people to access. Um, and I've got some resources, like I mentioned, um, the checklist and a few other things that people can just access straight away for free so they can just get started. But then what I've done in my blog is try to piece out each of those things nice, clearly, because 
once you take it away to your local environment, you want to t- kind of go, well, how do I do that? And and I'm a big believer that that looks different for everybody. Some people like to have one-on-one, so someone could want to work with me and I could help support them do that. Some people like to be able to do it from their computer and yeah. do it step-by-step at their own pace. So if anyone wants to get in contact with me, absolutely head to Think Effective, uh, sorry, thinkeffective.com.au um, and on there you can access um, my blogs, my newsletters, um, resources and things like that. You can certainly get in contact with me um, via my email, um, which is on the website and my phone number um, and more than happy to talk to people just to bounce off ideas, but also if anyone wants me to come out and work with them or provide them with resources, then I'd love to be a part of any change we can make happen in this space. That's wonderful. And uh, obviously you're on LinkedIn as well. And uh, yes, we'll, yep. put your, we'll put your links to your LinkedIn and to your website in the show notes. So if anyone's yeah, listening- absolutely. And I've got a, if you look up Think Effective Consultancy, I've got a Facebook page, which I try to keep fairly active with my latest blogs and just things that can help people and link them to anything that might be of support in this fan, really important, important area. Yep. Now, uh, before I let you go, Renee, I do have to ask you, we are on the Inspirational Australians podcast. What do you personally find inspirational, whether it's a person or uh, anything at all? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I like to just throw it on you right at the end. I know, I like it. I like it. Look, I, I get in, I really and truly get inspired when I talk to people, you know, other like-minded people. And as I said, going to conferences, I just, it, it brings me to life. <laughs> Yeah, because I just there's so much passion and excitement out there, but I very much get inspired by my husband and my family. I love them to bits, and I can't. Um, and my friends and my network. I think that um, they keep me inspired and and always on track. And I really do enjoy a microphone. I love being the lead singer of a band. <laughs> yeah, like that really um fires me up. <laughs> I can understand that. I love some karaoke, but I have no musical talent, so. <laughs> It's, it's limited to karaoke for me, but uh, that's great. Oh, you never know what's hidden in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Renee. Absolute pleasure chatting to you. And uh, we'll, we'll have to keep in touch. And uh, I do encourage people because I've been on your website and it does have some really good content to, uh, if, and especially if you're wanting to get started in this, you need some help, contact Renee. She will be the, an incredible asset for you. So thanks, Renee. Oh, thanks we'll so talk much soon. for having me, Josh. Yeah. Pleasure. Thanks. See ya. I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you liked it or any of our other episodes, it would be great if you can rate and review the Inspirational Australians podcast. It really helps us out. If someone you know needs a little dose of inspiration, why not let them know about this podcast? And if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed so that you won't miss an episode. Join us each week as we talk with ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. You can always head to our website at awardsaustralia.com slash podcast for more information and details on each guest. Now, before we go, I'd like to thank Annette, our producer. Here's a fun fact. Annette is my mum and our other host, Jeff, is my dad. This podcast is brought to you by Awards Australia, a family-owned business that proudly uncovers the stories of people who make a difference for others. We can only do this with the support of our corporate and not-for-profit partners as they make our awards programs possible. So do you know someone making a difference? If you'd like to recommend someone to be a guest on the podcast, get in touch through our Instagram page, inspirational.australians. Or maybe your business might like to sponsor the podcast or get involved with the awards we run. Head to our website, awardsaustralia.com 
for more details. Until next week, stay safe. And remember, together we make a difference. Thanks for joining us today on the Inspirational Australians podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and have been inspired by ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. So it's goodbye for another week. Remember, together we make a difference.